0: Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games, where I interview creators about their games and inspirations, and about the theory, process, and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, your host today and always, and your friendly local indie enthusiast. Today's interview is with Federico Sones of Aroakana Media, about their upcoming game Zephyr, a truly incredible work about feelings and identity, debt and obligation, and set on the back of a continent-sized creature traversing across endless salt flats. This is a very special game and one of my favourite interviews to date, and I know you'll enjoy it too. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. So today we're talking to fed 8. Hi there, Feddy, and welcome back to Yes Indeed Pod. Hi, thanks for having me again. <laughs> Absolutely no problem. It was such a delight to talk to you last time. You are the very first guest on yes indeed pod which consequently means you have pretty much the most downloads of any of our guests so (laughs) nice (laughs) congratulations (laughs) for that yeah do you
1: want to reintroduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene yeah totally i'm an argentinian designer i moved away from uh, my country of birth to london uh, about seven years ago And I basically started there, like, going to, like, a local club in London and and getting into, like, the whole idea of designing my own role-playing games. I had been uh, playing role-playing games for a while back home. And in London, kind of, like, I did my whole thing where I did my first game, uh, Nibiru, the one we talked about last time, and I also worked for Modiphius Entertainment for uh, a few years until I left uh, the, the UK again last year, actually. So yeah, I've been sort of like working on on my stuff most of the time dedicated to that game in Nibiru a sci-fi game about lost memories and stuff and now that is kind of now shifting away uh, from that because I'm on a new project essentially that I've been at for a while yeah it feels like you've been working on this project
0: at least since i met you which was what like two and a half years ago so do you want to tell us a little bit about zephyr
1: yeah totally uh so zephyr is pretty much um like the tagline is uh, an anarchist role playing game of fleeting identities the way i think of games or the startup point of games is i want to talk about certain topics and i Basically, propose axis like thematic axis. Yeah, if in NIVRI you had like uh, memory and identity. And nat- nature and artificiality. In Zephyr, what you have is feelings and identity. So again, with the theme of identity um, and debt and obligation. Hmm. So there's sort of like two uh, aspects: one that is more personal and intimate, in the side of like feelings and, and identity, and the other one, which is uh, more about my political leanings or or, or the stuff that interests me. Most uh, in terms of politics and stuff that I've been going through for a while now. So yeah, that's that's kind of the gist of it.
0: Well, do you want to tell us a little bit about the setting? Because I think it's something that a lot of people would find quite interesting. I mean, you talk about it being an anarchist setting, yes, or an anarchist game, and like I think some people have their own ideas about what that means. But to me, what your what the aesthetic of the game is from all the artwork I've seen and from the des- design discussion that you've you've had on the various servers I've been in, it's a little bit different to what people's expectations might be of
1: what anarchist. <laughs> And anarchism means so do you want to go into that a little bit i can basically tackle like the, the two axis in in order starting for sort of like the, the setting in terms of how it looks and how it feels and mostly delving on this idea of feelings and identity. The setting is essentially a sort of like landmass like a continent uh, that is alive. Yeah, It's it's a creature called Ophoi and this creature is on a relentless march along a never-ending salt flat and this living continent that moves and like uh, on his back he carries like mountain ranges and, and valleys and rivers and stuff like that. This creature has Sort of like a particular thing that it's made of that is called a zephyr. Mm. So the zephyr is the most imaginative, let's say, uh, side of the setting for me, which is uh, the idea that feelings are concrete, feelings are a substance. And they behave like substance. Uh, feelings can sort of like exist in a concrete, like a, like a solid state, liquid state, gas state, etc. They form the mountains. They form the the rivers and stuff like that. And and this Ophoi thing, this this uh, creature, this continent, the wandering landmass, is made of that so there's a bit of that about like physics and playing with physics and the met- metaphysics of feelings that goes into this idea of of feelings and identity because of this is like wandering land this, this creature has feelings of its own the feelings that that make it let's say uh there are the zephyr that come in four colors uh the cyan magenta yellow and black which so happen to be the colours that printers use to like print your books and stuff like that.
0: As a complete aside, um the fact that you use CMYK color space as a mechanic in your game, it, it's just something that's giving me life. I mean it's such a like such a wonderful idea. Yeah, It's really cute. And I think all of the all of the independent game producers out there who understand the difference between RGB and CMYK will be chuckling unto to themselves over that. Yeah,
1: totally. And those feelings, the CMYK feelings of, of a foy, have this sort of like element elemental particle aspect to it because with those colors you can form pretty much everything that you can see on print so the idea is that the feelings of this uh, of this wandering landmass this thing like cyan like what 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 cyan what does it mean well we don't know but we know that the feelings that we do know like sorrow rage uh guilt longing and all that stuff Mm. they are formed by combinations of of those four sort of like primal feelings yeah so it it has that thing where like the players do have that possibility of saying yeah okay like this is like a river made of rage and it's made of rage because rage is made by these like color combination of of zephyr of cyan magenta or whatever that metaphysic of feeling is very central So central that the core of the game, the game doesn't really use dice; it uses tokens of those four colors. So in the game, uh, those tokens get used for a series of things, and usually they are used to convey certain emotions, and to convey certain emotions, well, the players might have to spend the particular combination of, of color tokens to express that, for example. Yeah, yeah there's a very direct contact with with the metaphysics and the idea of the same
0: There's two really interesting things that I want to bring out there and the first is this idea of tokens and an exchange of tokens which I really, you know, I think you're going to talk about more when we when we do debt and obligation later on that other axis that you alluded to before but there's also this idea of using tokens in play which I think feels really ancient mm-hmm. There's a really cool game by Paul Sager which is one of the games that got me into indie TTRPGs in the first place which is called The Clay That Woke.
1: I remember uh, your chat with paul sigi about it yeah it has this big bowl
0: of tokens in the middle of the table and you take tokens at random from this bowl and you pick at them uh, and there's a menu that you can go to it's i can't remember what it's called um the oracle uh you go to with your, the different tokens that you've taken from this bowl which everybody feeds into just before you make a, a dip and then you read off like what the result is based on that mm-hmm. the game is is amazing in many ways and the art is really beautiful and it's it's an incredible game but the way that you're just talking about tokens here reminds me a lot of the, the way that I've seen in that game and then there are other games out there that only use tokens at the moment and I think like the no- most notable examples as well is like No Dice No Masters mm-hmm. and I think it's a really interesting way to convey a different mechanical feeling to the kind of sheer chance that a dice or a coin flip will give you this was a very long-winded way of bringing this question up but is there a reason that you chose to use tokens rather than a randomizer mechanism
1: well i really wanted the uh, the metaphysics and the way the world works the nature of the setting to be like front and center and this and the easiest mm. thing to do that is to say well you know what we will just play with the literal representation of Zephyr uh, we will like just handle the, the matter let's say to the point where the player characters which are Windfolk and they're made out of Zephyr they're, like they're made of a combination of CMYK on the character sheet there's a little space that is essentially constitution and you put there the tokens that they're made of so they're made of uh, I don't know Two black, two cyan, one magenta and two yellow, for example. And that's what they're made of at the moment. So Mm. you have that very direct contact with the nature of the world and and how it works physically. And there's this real
0: physicality to this as well. Mm -hmm. It's something that doesn't get lent into enough in tabletop role playing games is that there is a kind of innate physicality to playing them, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of that has to do with table ritual and things. And I think sometimes with with some games, you kind of have your own dice or your own things in front of you. And I think this idea of having a collection of tokens that you can kind of pass around and take ceremonially and things like that, I, I just think that physicality is really, really important to what a game feels like, so it's a really nice way to lean into it yeah totally i think there's some other ways that you've talked about the physicality of this game as well like am i right in saying that you know there are certain times when you actually damage your character sheet i mean, yes. i love that
1: <laughs> there's a type of antagonist uh that is essentially the people in in the state or or the state freelancers that essentially yeah if, if you come into contact uh because you're coming into contact with essentially conquerors people that have a completely different mindset that you're uh, of your own that is based on violent extraction and stuff like that. The the way in which you interact with them is completely different from how you would interact with other people let's say. Yeah. And so there's a thing where if they draw the sword and they, they strike at you um, you basically have to drop two tokens and you see where they intersect and you draw a line and you know that line is likely to slice off your character sheet. There's a mechanic where there's a particular section of your character sheet that can block that sort of like thing but it can it can cut you or you can get shot and they get to essentially drop uh, a few tokens and you have to make holes in the sheet uh, where those token lands and that can affect your character one way or another i mean this leans
0: so much into the kind of things that i enjoy which is the yeah. physicality of <laughs> role playing games but also artifacts of play you know then you've got a record a permanent record of mm-hmm. like how your character has been actually injured and that's really meaningful mm-hmm. all of a sudden it makes a massive difference and that's really interesting and i think it's gonna look amazing
1: <laughs> a lot of it is, is is also tied to well, in terms of like feelings and identity i think there's a kind of simple uh, idea behind it which is that everything that you uh that es- essentially exists uh, in at least what, what what you feel that that is your reality is something that you have feelings for or you have an opinion mm. um you're not really indifferent to anything that you Consider like part of your reality. Like even even if most of the things that are that are part of what uh, is real, you have a very simple or basic opinion, maybe because of like stereotypes or or whatever. There's always like a feeling that sort of like associates you uh, to that. Yeah. So I was thinking of how in Nibiru, the idea that your identity is represented by the character sheet was just this collection of memories. Well, in, in Zephyr, it might be this collection of ideas that you feel particularly strongly about yeah so the idea in zephyr like the the core mechanic you have like a task resolution uh, sort of thing um, that works with the tokens but kind of like the, the one of the biggest drivers of the system is is the fact that at certain points in the story, you can spend tokens from your constitution, so it means that uh, it, it takes an effort from the constitution of the Windfolk, the, the characters you play, to establish a sort of feeling towards something. Like, for example, yeah, I'm chasing after someone who killed my brother. I basically have to jump over, like, uh, a ledge or like a glyph to to catch them. Yeah, and I realize that uh, as I'm going to like do my my task resolution thingy, um, I basically choose to basically evoke fury because to to realize how furious I am against this person and how that feeling drives me to succeed, I basically take uh, I don't know like magenta, yellow, cyan, and I spend those and I get to write fury against uh, and I write the name of this person so now like that's that's sort of like a bond uh, that bonds me to this person uh, within that feeling and as the story goes I might do that again and that feeling might go from being one fury to two fury so that the fury might be more complex but maybe at some point I reveal that this person killed my brother because my brother was Plotting against me, mm. so I have I use the color combination that um, gives you the feeling of guilt. The feelings that you could have uh, for this person become more complex. It's not just fury two yeah. now; it's guilt yeah. one or whatever. The identity of the characters gets built by building these these complex bonds to to people, to things, to ideas, uh, and so on, and spending the the color combinations. It's pretty amazing because
0: I spoke the other day to Adam and Thrin of Thirty of Shambles, who make a game called Rhine. And Rhine also has feelings like really deeply at its core and you kind of explore the feelings that are important to your characters, but instead of like having preset stats, you basically choose which stats that you want to discuss uh with mm-hmm. your for your character so you might choose rage or you might choose empathy or or other feelings as well and i just think it's really interesting to explore how emotions affect us and affect the world around us and affect how we see the world around us and how we see others and i think your game is going to explore that really interestingly i have this kind of overarching vision that games that talk about emotions are really really important particularly to to children Mm. But particularly to boys, because I think we have uh, some cultures, (laughs) some Western cultures have an issue with not allowing boys to explore emotions in a meaningful way. Yes. And not allowing them to have complicated emotional language so that when they grow up and become adults, Mm -hmm. sometimes they 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 don't have the language to discuss feelings and that's really really bad yeah. like that's not that's not a good situation to be in you know and and actually our, our, our economy and our culture and our social life is sort of built on this principle mm-hmm. that that males are not allowed to experience these emotions in the same way that, that women are yeah and that really upsets me and like obviously i'm speaking from my uh, my own experience here i think it's really important to Be able to discuss and explore emotions like this, so this is a really important game for for people to play. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I feel the same, I've, I've felt that like throughout my life, and there's a, a very direct call out to that in Zephyr, where sort of like the antagonist of the Windfolk, and, and now we can get into like the second axis, which is like uh, debt against obligation. Yeah, so, so like the, the antagonist. Group Zephyr is the salt states, let's say. Essentially, a a series of states that appear in sort of like the geographic center of foy. more like the plains, the central plains of, of the continent. And in that society, there is such a thing that's called the monogender, which essentially is a gender construct that is particularly designed to cal- qualify three of the emotions that are set in Zephyr as virtuous and three that are undesirable. So you have this thing where there's actually... A gender construct that is made to penalize the expression of certain emotions uh, in the way where like at least in my upbringing it, it did happen where like yeah just boys would be told you shouldn't like do this thing this is not right for you this is like or or, or that boys are particularly find it hard to I don't know to cry or, or, or whatever Yeah, it's part of like my view on gender it doesn't mean that gender has to be that way for anyone else of course like yeah. for a lot of people gender is a, a super liberating thing mm. but in this case in particular i wanted to sort of like tackle that yet yeah, it, it has that thing and it has an integration with the whole metaphysics of feeling because it just so happens that the three sort of like virtuous feelings that this society sort of like puts in high esteem they all sort of like lack a particular color of the zephyr which i think is black color so there's a whole sort of like metaphysics and and very lore heavy uh consequence to that
0: yeah so
1: i think that's really
0: interesting and you were talking about uh, how this game intersects uh, feeling an identity with debt and obligation. I mean, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that looks like in play?
1: So, like to finalize the the idea of uh, of bonds, one thing in particular that happens in the Zephyr setting is that you're going to spend those those tokens to express fury for example and to or to acknowledge the fact that you you have a feeling of rage towards this person but that takes uh, emotional energy from you those tokens you spend were in your constitution and now they're they're not there anymore right Yeah. so there the whole dynamics of survival that the game has that is like uh, concrete like that there there's a survival mechanic or aspect of it has to do with that with how Uh, You spend this to be able to express yourself and to acknowledge your feelings, and then you have to gain that nourishment back in your journeys, well, that's hunting and that's doing stuff that, Mm. uh, sort of like cooking and stuff like that. Because it's it's an adventure, essentially, an adventure game. Kind of like, uh, there's this flow between the Zephyr tokens that you use and that go from your character into the world, and how players can actually use the tokens that are in the world to create sort of like, I don't know, like a, a rainfall of sorrow or or like a landslide or something and, mm. and sort of like play with the tokens in that way. Yeah. Yeah aside from that the second axis which is like debt and obligation has a lot to do with uh, the society of the wind folk yeah so the wind folk essentially and this is drawing heavily from a lot of uh, anthropological literature from the last 50 years or so a lot of david Graeber, a lot of james c scott and then Marshall Celine's uh, Pierre Clastres, Marcel Mauss, uh, essentially a-, a lot of anthropologists that have sort of like delved into societies and communities outside of the purview of states and outside of like the dynamics of states, which essentially are mm. about the monopoly of violence and the idea that, well, for humans to behave like violence has to be always the sort of like the end thing that keeps everyone in line so the wind folks don't really work like that first of all they live in sort of like the periphery of a foy so there's like very uh high mountains and and there's very sort of like thick forests and and places where the force of the state armies etc like find it very hard to go in and they have yeah like a lot of different ways of interacting with one another and ways in which they live through the seasons uh, that draw a lot from very different practices of communities living outside of states that people are not very familiar with. At least my goal to that is not to say this is an ideal way of living or, or this is a bad way of living or something like that. It's to just sort of like shed light on how uh, societies living outside of states have been able to exercise political imagination for example the idea that um wind folk like they they live in like small communities and they they take their homes with them etc but yeah come peak season which would be sort of like winter they all conflux into one particular uh, place where they have sort of like a city that is a winter city let's say mm. where they basically do a sort of like pantomime of state so they turn into sort of like a a, a state uh, carnival in, in mockery of the salt states let's say uh, in uh, in mockery of the uh, big <laughs> sort of like thing that happens in the center of the of the continent and and that has also a lot to do with, for example, uh, the idea of uh, schismogenesis and how cultures define themselves against one another and how a lot of peoples uh, outside of state have a lot of practices that have to do with avoiding the origin of states within them. Yeah. They see as taboo, for example, giving orders to other people. And there's that thing of, like, seasonality and how uh, carnivals and, and certain practices serve to sort of, like, switch things up. And it's 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 very interesting. The core thing in, in the game that expresses that is obligation. So obligation is essentially a mechanic that is the way in which characters between ear quotes advance or learn new things or acquire new things but also the way in which they relate to one another and how adventures are actually built like the story structure is built
0: yeah so you're saying that the the wind folk characters start as young wind folk in in the winter city is that right and when, when they're about to start yeah this?
1: They, they're basically uh it, it starts off in essentially the middle of festivities. And in these festivities, what happens is the young wind folk take on obligations and they set off in their journey. So obligations generally are about fulfilling certain tasks that are a bit out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they require people to just go out of the village and into the wild and and sort of like do their thing. There's this concept in wind folk societies that has to do with reciprocity that is called oi, Oi is like an imaginary substance that can linger if things are sort of like, sort of like feel uncomfortable uh, in terms of reciprocity. Let's say that, for example, you you're on a date and uh, the person you're with is basically always talking about themselves and they never ask anything from you or something like that. Well, <laughs> you, you might start feeling that this oi thing, like you, you might smell that th- sort of thing. And it can be like very menial and, and very just like, you know, whatever, like in, in that situation. Or it can be like a feeling of, you know, of one-sidedness that's that's very big. Mm-hmm. So this oi thing is is used in uh, sort of like, uh, you have, I don't know, um, it, it's, it's essentially how you value uh certain things in in the game for example if you want to learn how to hunt or if you want uh this like big ornate knife that you use for wood carving that might have like a a cost in oi so let's say that training to be a hunter is like six oi if you want to get that as a windfolk what you have to do is you have to create an obligation that counters those, those six OI, let's say. So mm. you build an adventure, there's a series of steps where you build an adventure. And for example, depending on how far you have to go, uh, if uh, if specialized skills are required, uh, the more people you're benefiting with this, like the higher the, the OI uh, sort of like counter that, that you get. You basically try to balance out uh, that cost in Oi by building this sort of like quest, right? Yeah. So it it sort of starts like that. The young windfolk sort of like think of what they want to start their adulthood, if they want to train as carpenters, if they want like these set of tools or whatever yeah they think of that that has like an oi cost and they then the players craft a sort of like uh, obligation that will set themselves to travel the world uh, in that way Uh, there's an interesting bit to that which is we're using oi points but like there's not really a counting happening in the actual like world of zephyr like it's just Mm. a sensation there's a bit where when you're doing this thing, like when you're calculating how many points, etc., you never want it to be zero. You never want the equation to be zero. You want it to be minus one, for example, or plus or plus one, uh, in the end, the balance. And that's a concept that comes uh, from gift economies. Uh, a lot of societies outside of state have like sort of like gift economies, yeah. which a lot of this thing happens to... Well, it's, it, obligations kind of, like, happen like that. Like, you know, it's it's all personal, and it's always this idea that if you want, like, I don't know, 3X, well, you take 3X from Pablo, and the day of tomorrow, uh, Pablo might ask you to, I don't know, fix the roof of, of like, the shed or something. Sure. But you, yeah. never, you never give 3X back, because that gives the idea that, you know, uh, i don't want anything to do with you or something like that
0: yeah yeah that's a that's a snub right i really see where this is and like this is leaning back into what you were saying at the beginning that this is kind of an an anarchist game right and it's not an anarchist in terms of mm-hmm. what people typically think of as anarchy <laughs> which is yeah. a kind of um which is a kind of concept which is driven by propaganda essentially <laughs> and this is the kind of uh, mutual living coexisting social social living that is yes, as you said, aid. prevalent in things mm-hmm. that are outside of what we might categorize as normal society possibly not necessarily tied into monetary economies and i think that's really interesting to explore through this particular lens which also has a lot of discussion about sort of colonial incursion as well
1: yeah totally that sort of like obligation thing is is sort of like counteracted by the concept of debt cuz if you think about it well this this obligations like it's always a particular person that you're doing this for and there's a particular yeah. person well that that teaches you uh, to hunt, or that crafted this particularly beautiful knife that you're you're yeah. getting, or or whatever. It's always personal, and uh, it's it's always something that you can't really count. It's sort of like in the air, you, you can't really count, you know, exactly this is what this training is worth, or whatever. Mm. And counter to that is the idea of debt. The idea of debt is that is really impersonal. It's it's something that you know it can move across people. And uh, it's it's quantifiable. It's essentially the meaning of money. Money is debt, and that's essentially the the way that society of the salt states uh, works. It's basically uh, with salt. They have like a very complex system of debts and and debt records, and using salt as tokens. And you have different salt lords that rise, and they coin their own salt tokens, and and they all sort of like wage war uh, upon each other. there's a very kind of terrifying dynamic to this whole like salt states thing where everyone is is in debt to one another the very fact that you were alive means that you sort of like incurred a a, a life debt that sort of like gave you your your net value let's say or your net worth Um, and uh, (laughs) how the idea is that Uh, The people that try to rise in this society and eventually reach to be like a a salt lord, Mm. they do it uh, motivated to bring upon jubilee. So bring the end of all debts. The problem is that you can't really bring the end of all debts if you're not owning the debt of everyone else. Uh, so there's a very, very destructive I- dynamic where everyone is waging war against one another and uh, sort of, like, catching each other in debt because they have a very legitimate feeling. like It's, it's, it's a legitimate feeling, like, trying to rid uh, everyone of debt and trying to bring upon this jubilee thing. Mm-hmm. But there's this, like, very cyclical nature of violence that kind of drives them to do, like, horrible uh, things. Yeah, And that's sort of, like, a very personal thing for me of trying to realize why is it that like people that otherwise would be perfectly great people can justify like horrible things and and what is sort of like the mentality and the mechanisms by which really cruel things happen in our world and and that's tied a lot to uh Graver's writings on on death, particularly it's my favorite book but putting that into paper and sort of like embodying that in in the salt states.
0: I think it's interesting that you've chosen to use salt as their token of currency as well because <laughs> that that was a real token of currency for a long time yeah. or a, a sort of proxy currency in uh, mm-hmm. especially in countries that didn't have good access to salt. <laughs> mm-hmm it reminds me of this story i heard of this is a region of italy and i'm really sorry to all my italian listeners because i cannot remember which one it is salt was really heavily taxed in this region Mm -hmm. and so instead of like paying all this money to other other regions they were just like well fuck it we're just not going to use salt so all their bread doesn't have any salt in it, and uh, consequently, they have loads of really interesting recipes for um, how to use up stale bread. <laughs> and I just think that that is yeah. a kind of interesting way of um, turning that that kind of currency and that kind of enforced debt, if you like, back on its creators. Speaking yeah, totally, of yeah. recipes, <laughs> you're saying that there's a lot of, uh, and in fact, you've shown me that there are a lot of kind of cooking things in this game yeah and i really love that because it's something that doesn't get shown in a lot of adventure games it's kind of just oh you make camp and you have a discussion and you you eat and keep watching stuff and like Mm -hmm. there's never any discussion about what actually gets eaten but you (laughs) are expressly discussing what the kind of what the kind of recipes are do you want to talk
1: a little bit about that because i think it's yeah, something totally. that people would find interesting I, I i find it like super super fun uh, to design that because basically i mean if you think about it like the the wind folk are made of like the cmyk so it means that you could say like a balanced diet is uh, one that has like the four uh, sort of like uh, colors right um yeah in fact th- there's there's such a thing in the game as uh, health conditions that happen to be tied to for example if you have seven cyan well you have like a super high content of cyan so that has an effect in the game if you don't have a particular color well it means that your windfall can't literally uh, express a certain array of feelings um, yeah. So it has very, very direct. Uh, so like consequences and uh, because you're using because you're spending tokens all the time, uh, you're spending them for effort, you're spending them to, to make the bonds and stuff like that and, and different things. And also like uh, only to to be alive, like at the end of the of the session uh, of every session, you you lose like one token. You, you can lose more if you have lots of obligations weighing down on you. If you mm. have lots of obligations active, that is like an, an emotional sort of like weight that you have yeah. to, well, sort of like bear with. Um, uh, there, there's a lot of that, like the significance of of tokens and stuff like that. But with cooking, it's basically the idea that when you, when you hunt something or w- when you prepare something, you can't really uh, just, I don't know take like a fruit that is made of two black tokens one cyan one yellow and one magenta and just eat that like that you have to cook it because uh essentially the the setting uh, states that like you need to Break it down. Uh, break it down into yeah. essentially three tokens, uh, like three colors, and and that's essentially what cooking has done for us. And and what happens when we eat stuff like the body and and the process like essentially breaks down the components so we can digest them. Mm, um, yeah. Cooking historically is, is sort of like a way of externalizing that breaking down process. Um, yes, and it's been like a major reason why. You know, we have evolved how we've we've evolved, like being able yeah. to uh, break that down through like cooking and, and and stuff like that. It's 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 very interesting. In the game, it has a very simple sort of act, like application where, for example, you have like a compendium of creatures and of fruits and plants and stuff that you can eat. And whenever you cook uh, one of these things, uh, each of those uh, things have like a composition listed. Yeah. For example, two black, one cyan, one yellow, one magenta. So when you cook, you grab those tokens, the tokens that they're made of, and you randomly discard one. And you then check, well, if I still have four color combination, I need to continue to cook. If I get the three one, well, we can actually uh, slice this up and and just uh, eat it, uh, right? Uh, so it becomes a, a very interesting game where, like, uh, depending on your luck, uh, you might get a more nutritious meal or you might get a less nutritious meal. Um, <laughs> and, for example, certain cooking skills that you can acquire might tell you, well, you know, you can just cook as normal or... If you happen to have this skill, for example, I don't know, you know, you don't know how to roast something, you get to discard a cyan token, and that might be everything you need. Uh, maybe you have like a, I don't know, like a, you hunted down an animal that is like three black, three magenta, three yellow, and one cyan. What means that if you get rid of the cyan, you get like nine tokens. So it's super nutritious. But if yeah. you didn't have that, you would have to keep discarding until you yeah. land a, a three-color combination. So it can become a weightless. Does this does this get shared
0: between all the members
1: of yeah, of the group of as well? So you get to yeah, share the meal like any like sweet. any meal you, you
0: would have. It's really lovely. I really like that an awful lot. And and does does that mean that you know sometimes if you have this color combination, you know a pool of tokens. That, you know, some people might say, oh, well, I need this token or other people might say, well, I need this token. Do you get to distribute it in that way or does everybody get the same tokens?
1: Generally, you do distribute them randomly, but there's, for example, a particular technology because I call them technologies, sort of like the the, the skills uh, Mm. that is basically knowing about the cuts. So in that case, you know that, for example, I don't know, the liver gives you black tokens. The okay. uh, You know, the, the thing gives you this. That's so in that so case, nice. you might sort of like plan depending on that. Another really interesting aspect of this is, for example, the fact that, like I mentioned before, that this idea of like the monogender and uh, sort of like mm. um, having a thing in, in, in the salt states. So the salt states... Uh, generally they um, they ask their subjects to grow crops that only favor the three colors that sort of like boost the, the, the three virtuous feelings, right? So what happens yeah. in, in the salt states is most of the, the food that you could take uh, from like a field or something is very high in cyan, magenta, and yellow, but it almost have, like, no black uh, zephyr. So it's a problem, actually, going into the salt states. Yeah, um, yeah. Because uh, there's, there's a nutritional thing. and it's, a, it's an actual thing from history where the most sort of, like, archaic states, uh, and even to, to modernity, uh, states have uh, a series of crops that they favor, and you could call them, like, monoculture mono states where they essentially ask you only to grow wheat, or only to grow barley um, yeah and the sort of like the, there's a there's a very cool record of like ancient history in which uh, belonging to a state like you you could tell by the way people were being uh, nourished and the sort of like nutrients that they consumed and you can see that like in their bones in like excavations and stuff like that how their diets were and how state states overseeing the nutrition and the kind of things that were cultivated uh sort of like related to that uh i think
0: kind of as we sort of see cooking and eating as a kind of a very individual level or a familial level interaction
1: it's very political
0: (laughs) yeah but it's actually really political isn't it because you can only eat what is grown what what is grown or what is available Mm -hmm. and if that is being controlled by a state or by the weight of a state's historical burden, Mm -hmm. then you can't necessarily eat what you need to. For example, I don't know, I'm struggling to find examples in Europe, but there are obvious examples like wheat is really, really powerful Mm -hmm. uh, entity, but like in China and uh, other parts of East Asia where rice is like such, Mm -hmm. such a vital part of the economy. That is effectively the same thing, isn't it? And it's a transition from not hunter-gatherer societies, but like non-state societies where you can pretty much find whatever you need to find and grow whatever you Mm -hmm. want to grow to a centralised economy. And I guess that's the meaning of an economy, isn't it? It's a centralised way of controlling what is produced.
1: There's a reason why you see wheat states and not cassava states, for example. As James Scott would put it, it's basically the fact that wheat has certain Advantages about legibility by the yeah, state yeah. that are just super, super huge. Like, for example, the fact that uh, it's very easy to assess at site the size of, like, a wheat field. Um, yes. You always know when you have to uh, harvest it, so the taxman can always know when they have to go and collect from you. Yeah. Uh, you can't really store it for that long, um, and it has a very high content of uh calories compared to the weight um yeah so if you're seizing uh wheat is way easier than seizing i don't know like root vegetables that might just like be way heavier to transport over distance and stuff like that there's a lot of about the politics and the dynamics and uh, and how the struggle against state sort of like happens uh through the ways in which we grow food and in and, and which we cultivate the soil and stuff like that. That's very present in the game. My head's going all over the place now, but it, it, particularly to things like
0: uh, the Irish potato famine, for example, mm-hmm. was a kind of... is. Characterized as a sort of ecological disaster, you know, something that wasn't, mm-hmm. that something wasn't predictable, but it kind of was because there's this massive monoculture, or monoculture economy, yeah? Like everybody mm-hmm. in Ireland was dependent on the potato crop and it failed. And that's, that's the failure of state. That's not a failure of, um, the way that people were farming. And it's interesting that that propaganda has twisted that over time, you know, um, because obviously, the, the propaganda is about <laughs> you know propping up the british empire effectively but yeah totally y- you're talking about this game in such an intellectual and cerebral way you know gathered <laughs> from all these different uh historical sources and archaeological sources and it's it's really interesting to see how that comes together in a in a kind of wonderfully playable <laughs> setting and
1: i love and, that. and that's yeah. the important thing that it's playable and it's not just like words on a page that's uh that you yeah. you're like, oh wow, yeah. that's interesting. No, it's actually like it has like a like a thing that I love happens it. in game. I yeah. think that's important.
0: What a fascinating treatise on, you know, all <laughs> all of those things. I just think everybody needs to go out and play this and experience it definitely. What's the kind of production cycle <laughs> looking like now? Uh,
1: well it's um I want to crowdfund it uh next year. Um, but the game is is, is also like I'm, I'm going a bit wild with the, with the whole production of the game because it's I'm illustrating it uh, fully illustrated, uh, which means that every spread uh, is has like an illustration and the composition has to work within each illustration to fit the text in, in a pleasant manner and stuff like that. It's it's, it's beautiful, but it takes a lot of work. Mm. But I'm um, I'm pretty advanced on on that regard, fortunately, um, uh, and I have this process at the moment, which is essentially I, I just draw something, I finish the illustration, I write on top, and uh, I have like my sort of like SRD made and and my index made, and uh, it's it's very pleasant how I'm working with it. I'm I'm very happy with it. But I just let it flow. Um, I'm sure it will crowdfund next year because I have no choice <laughs> financially, but uh, it, it's it's quite advanced, I think, at the moment, uh, the whole idea.
0: Can, can people test this now or is it, um, is it kind of closed?
1: They can't test it now. Unfortunately, I haven't made like a, a quick start guide. Um, I want to in the future if I can, uh, but yeah, it'll, it'll depend on, on how my, my timing sort of like forms. <laughs>
0: And I I think one of the most interesting things that you talk about with this is that because of the tokens and the kind of uh, physicality of the game, it sounds a lot more like board game production than it does RPG production. So it's going to be really interesting to try and um, to try and make that game and to try and get that out into the world because people are going to need to have a set of tokens for that. And
1: that's really nice. The tokens are actually like, like they're very cheap and it's sort of like the only thing that you have to have outside of like the the book so equally it doesn't sort of form
0: part of a gamer's typical physical stuff kit oh yeah like (laughs) most people have got dice most people have got a pack of playing cards most people have access to buying a tarot deck but a set of tokens of four specific colors may be Mm -hmm. kind of a (laughs) bit more difficult to obtain i really really want everybody to be able to see this game and to be able to play it so please when you see it on on the twitter <laughs> or on facebook please go out and and back this because uh, it's going to be it's going to be truly wonderful i have seen an awful lot of the art for this i'm super super excited if you liked nibiru and its expansion xanadu you are going to really like this absolutely on that note fede do you want to tell us where we can find you online
1: you can find my sort of like gaming stuff in Auricana One uh at twitter you can also go to oracana.com and there's like a mailing list there which would be the easiest way to to find out about that but if you follow oracana on twitter um you can uh, very easily uh, sort of like get like a tweeter thing that suddenly is like oh my god we're launching zephyr because i'll be screaming all over the place when that happens you will uh, it'll be unavoidable yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah All that remains for me to say is thank you very much for coming on Yes Indeed Pod and good luck with crowdfunding Zephyr next year. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and thanks again to Fede for the interview. As always, you can find all of the links in the episode description. Next time we're chatting to indie creator extraordinaire Vincent Baker about Under Hollow Hills, which he created with McGay Baker and which is a game about a travelling circus of fey folk in good times and bad. Friends, this interview was a delight, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Tune in in two weeks to find out more. This week's episode has been kindly sponsored by Plus One EXP in their game Through the Void. After the Solar Wars, almost nothing was left. Empires demolished, cultures destroyed, the legions scattered across the void as a shadow of itself. All that remains is the station, Eternus. It looms in the middle of space, an impossible structure built of rings within rings, constantly shifting, whirring, changing. Surrounded by the inky blackness of space and the vast ruins from generations of a war that slowly whimpered out, for decades now Eternus has survived on the salvage of bygone eras, small outlying colonies and asteroid mines along with the sweat, toil and blood of drifters, those desperate few willing to leave the safety of the rings and go THROUGH THE VOID. THROUGH THE VOID is an old-school inspired minimalist RPG built using the Together We Go system. It embraces anti-canon team brewing and iterative world building with a focus on emergent play. Isolation, loneliness and instant lethality in the void are mirrored by the pluralistic wild, power-hungry desperation on Eternus. Tony Vazinda and the Plus One EXP team are itch funding an Ashcan version of the game from January 7th to 31st to add fresh art, ship designs, adventures and setting tools to the core system. You can check it out and support the game at ttrpg.link slash ttv. This week, and once again, I'd like to thank some of my incredible Patreon backers. Georgie Batts and Sean Patrick Kane, thank you so very much for your ongoing support of the show. It means the world to us. Sean, I heard you recently on the Lost Bay podcast, and it was just delightful to hear your voice and what you've been up to with pickup libraries. Kudos. And you, yes you, can get a regular shout out and joyful thanks too if you go to patreon.com slash yesindeedpod and sign up today. You'll get access to our Discord server where we can hang out and chat, and even join monthly editing streams and the Yes Indeed Pod book club. Most of the money will go directly to creators rather than to me, so you'll be investing directly in the indie scene, which will make it a healthy and inclusive place for years to come. And if you can't commit regularly, you can always help out by rating and reviewing the show wherever you find your podcasts, or by donating through the Ko-Fi page at ko-fi.com slash yesindeedpod. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at yesindeedpod. That's Y-E-S-I-N-T-I-E-D-P-O-D. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is taken from Be Quiet from Yatsar from the Free Music Archive, released under creative commons attribution share alike 3.0 international license and until next time remember does indie need you yes indeed